0: And so without a substitute, without these lambs, they would have been destroyed as well. But in this first Passover, God considered the sacrifices of these lambs to be sufficient to save His people from judgment, at least for the moment. And after Moses eventually gets them out of Egypt and God brings them through the Red Sea and they're led to the foot of Mount Sinai, God gives them His law and makes a covenant with them. He promises to be their God and He calls them to obey Him and be His people. But unlike the covenant He makes with Abraham, this covenant is filled with stipulations and rules with conditions that the people must agree to keep, and they do. They say, we will keep every word And God is clear in Deuteronomy 28 that obedience to this covenant law will bring blessing and prosperity. But disobedience to this covenant, this law, will bring curse and destruction. And so the law is given to them so that they can be set apart as God's treasured possession. And the backbone of this law is the sacrificial system. See, sacrifices seen throughout the Old Testament. Think back to the garden again, Adam and Eve. Uh, As soon as they ate from the tree, the fruit that God had forbidden, they felt ashamed of their nakedness and tried to cover themselves with leaves. And God's response to this problem foreshadows the way He would continue to deal with human sin to this day. He makes clothes for er, for Adam and Eve out of animal skins. And the the text doesn't tell us about the significance of these new garments. But think about it. Where does the animal skins come from? Without trying to read too far into the text and put our own meaning into it, what we see is that an animal had to die so that the shame of sin could be covered. And as soon as sin entered the world, God made a way to deal with it with that sin through sacrifice. See, the law encompassed many things. It dictated Israel's civil life, their government, their moral behavior, and their religious and ceremonial practices. And the law was very specific about when to sacrifice, what to sacrifice, how to sacrifice. There were a variety of sacrifices or burnt offerings. Each type of offering served a different function But in general, these sacrifices were designed to show gratitude to God, to demonstrate a repentant heart before God, and to atone for their sin. Literally, to cover their sin. At Mount Sinai, God provided Israel with the design of a tabernacle. Brian looked at this last week. It was essentially uh, a temple on wheels. Without wheels. It was a portable temple that... Symbolized God's presence with His people. But it also was the proper place to bring sacrifice. And this is something I want you to remember today. That the temple was needed for sacrifice. The tabernacle was needed for sacrifice. We're going to be looking at that later this morning. But it was required under Mosaic law that the sacrifices would happen in the temple. Every year, the Levite priests needed to offer hundreds upon hundreds of sacrifices for the sins of the people. One of the most striking features of the Old Testament law is the blood. There seems to be blood everywhere in the book of Leviticus. Everywhere. And it's because blood was necessary for an effective sacrifice. Leviticus 17 says this, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Try to imagine yourself in ancient Israel. Like every other group of people on the face of the earth, you struggle with sin. Welcome to life. But on a regular basis now, you are required to Now that you have received the revelation of God's character and His holiness, and you have agreed to the stipulations of the covenant, you are required to bring the appropriate sacrifice in order to make atonement for your sins, to restore peace with God. And every time a sacrifice was offered, which was a lot, an animal would die, its blood would flow, and the blood would be splattered on the altar. Imagine standing there watching this. It would have been messy. It would have been bloody. That's a given. And I don't know if you've ever gone out and hunted, but it would have stank. It would have been incredibly smelly. Every time you witness this, you would be reminded of the seriousness of sin and the awful consequences. Every time, you would see a graphic representation of of what your sin required. And you would be thankful that that lamb, that goat, or that bull died in your place because the message being sent to each person by every bull or goat or lamb sacrificed was you deserve this. This should be your blood. You deserve this death. Pretty humbling. Just to give you a picture of the magnitude of these sacrifices. These sacrifices could be when Solomon finally completed the temple in 1 Kings 8. Check out how many we had just here. Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings which he offered to the Lord. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. The king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Peter would be livid. And that's really the point. It should make us realize. It should make something well, without, well within us and say, this is, this is crazy. Because God was showing them the stark reality that sin has horrible consequences. In Hebrews 9, it says, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness. None. Every year, Israel would celebrate the anniversary of the first Passover in Egypt. Every year, each family was to sacrifice another lamb as a substitute and remember the slavery they were saved from in Egypt. And one day a year, the nation was to participate in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on this day, the high priest was allowed to enter the most Holy place, the Holy of Holies, one day a year, and stand before God on behalf of the people. And the high priest would take with him the blood of a spotless lamb. Three animals were actually involved in this ceremony. First, he would sacrifice a bull as an offering to atone for his own sins because he could not come into the presence of God on his own accord. No one, not even the high priest, is holy or perfect. Then the high priest would offer two goats. The first goat would be sacrificed and its blood would be smeared on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant just as the the bull's blood had been. And picture the significance of this, if you would. Inside the Holy of Holies, God's presence was looking down on the Ark of the Covenant. This box that had cherubim which contained the copy of the law That Israel had broken through their sin. Over and over and over. The law was inside this box. And then the lid, which is referred to as the mercy seat of this ark, is smeared with sacrificial blood. This blood satisfied the wrath of God because a substitute was offered in place of the people who deserved His wrath. So instead of seeing the law when God looked down on the ark... He saw the blood on its lid. And he said, this is sufficient. The law is covered. It's atoned for. Essentially, this goat died in place of the entire nation. Once a year, the nation's sins would be forgiven in a moment. This would be intense. I mean, imagine waiting outside the Holy of Holies as the high priest enters to make his offering on behalf of the people was a sinful man entering into a very holy place, into the very presence of Almighty God. And all the joy you would feel as the high priest would emerge safely from God's presence. A sign that the sacrifice had been accepted. And your sins, because of what the high priest has now done, they're atoned for. You did nothing in the ceremony. You stood there and waited. And you're like, is he going to die in there? And he comes out and you say, God, thank you for saving my sins. The priest would take the second goat, the first had been sacrificed, and symbolically lay his hands on the head of this goat to represent the sins of the people being transferred to this animal. So the blood offering was made. And now we take those sins and we put them on this goat. And they would send that animal out into the wilderness because that animal was to bear all their iniquities on itself into a remote area, as Leviticus says. This was another powerful picture of what was happening with the sin of God's people. Their sin was being removed. It was being carried off to a remote location, never to visit them again. Their guilt and condemnation was gone. And keep in mind that as amazing as this must have felt, the joy you must have felt in this moment, it inevitably faded. Because this ceremony was to be repeated every single year. Because Israel was not, they didn't stop sinning, and the Day of Atonement was supplemented by an ongoing and detailed sacrificial system. Because Israel's sins were constant, so even though we have this one day, we also every single week are bring, bringing something, whether it be a grain offering. The need for constantly, the need to constantly repeat these things, these sacrifices, pointed to the limitation inherent in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But that wasn't the only problem. Because you see, the effectiveness of these sacrifices was never just based on the mere performance. It wasn't just based on the ritual. From the very beginning, it had always been about the heart of the worshiper. Not about the value of his or her sacrifice. God says this explicitly through the prophet Hosea. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than the burnt offering. So even though the law required sacrifice, it was not sufficient in itself. Probably the most startling picture of this shortcoming of animal sacrifice is found in the book of Malachi. In this short book, God spoke forcefully to His people about the uselessness of their sacrifices. They had kept up the outward form and rituals of the sacrificial system, but their hearts were far behind it. Consequently, they were no longer offering their best to God, their best flocks. They were simply going through the motions. And God said explicitly to them, Oh, that, you, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you. Says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Surely God would rather have something, He would rather have something rather than nothing, right? No. Even if we offer Him less than our best, at least He should be impressed that we consider Him, that at least we're coming to Him with something. No. God actually says the exact opposite. He would rather someone shut the doors and prevent sacrifices from being offered at all than to have people make casual sacrifices. He is a holy God who demands proper sacrifice. It is not a joke. It is not a flippant thing to do. Under the old covenant, we see the absolute need not only for proper sacrifice, but also for a proper heart. You have to bring me A sacrifice in the way that I have commanded you. And your heart has to be right towards me. And this seems all but impossible when we look at Israel's history. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah would eventually declare that the heart is the most deceitful thing above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Literally, it is impossible for us to have a good heart towards you, Lord. So even if we have the rituals, how in the world are we going to do it? By the time we get to the book of First and Second Kings, this sickness can be seen all too well. We watched a video of this, about these books concerning Israel's downfall last week, but there's two situations I just want to highlight again. I hope I'm not talking too fast, but I have like 17 more pages to get through. So, the sins of the kings begin to rot away the nation. Even Solomon, in all of his wisdom, did not have the ability to stay away from sin and keep his heart towards God. Eventually the nations of Israel split into two. We have the northern kingdom, which is comprised of the ten tribes of Israel. And then the southern kingdom, which contains the other two, Judah and Benjamin. So we have all these tribes over here and we have Judah and Benjamin. Northern, southern. And Judah and Israel, as these two kingdoms are now called, Israel is the ten tribes, Judah is the two, they now have two kings. Now we don't only have one corrupt king over Israel. We have two. Yay! Um, And their kings just continue to lead their people into deeper and deeper idolatry. And although the temple is finally established in Jerusalem, the sacrifice of animals is not solving their problem, as we see clearly in the book. In fact, interesting enough, it's actually escalating idolatry. In a very peculiar way. Let me show you. When the ten tribes of the northern kingdom break away from Judah, their king Jeroboam builds two new temples in the northern kingdom. Why? To compete with God's temple in the north. Um, Jeroboam puts golden calves in each one of these. And he says this. You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough... Behold your God, O Israel, who has brought you out of Egypt. Literally the exact same things the people in Exodus 32 said when they built the golden calf while Moses was up in the mountain. This is our God who has saved us from Egypt. This is insane when you put it in context to the covenant that they're in. Please remember that God has given Israel strict guidelines of how to stay right with Him. The sacrificial system is not a game. It's the only means in which to be forgiven. The only. The law is not a game. Period. It's the avenue of unsurmountable blessing and prosperity. But it is also the avenue of the greatest destruction and curses you will ever find. And Jeroboam does this because he's afraid if his people continue to visit Solomon's temple in the southern kingdom, their loyalty would soon swing back to the kings of Judah. So here, the sacrificial system which God has given his people to redeem them from their sins, to provide a substitute so they can walk in relationship with him, has now become a, a tool for political power. Crazy. I mean, we never see that type of thing happening today, do we? God being used for political gain? Never. People talking about two Corinthians and stuff? But this was just the beginning. Because eventually, when Josiah becomes king, more than 300 years after David is dead, he commissions a series of renovations to the temple. And while they're renovating the the temple, the priests find the lost book of the law. What? They found the law. Like the whole thing? Like all the moral and civil and sacrificial laws that the people were in requirement under. And if they broke any of them, they would absorb all the curses from Deuteronomy 28. It was lost? Yes. As far as I could tell in my studies this week, There is some disagreement on the extent of this book. It could have been the entire Pentateuch, the entire five books of the Bible. But it probably was at least the original copy, handwritten by Moses, of the whole book of Deuteronomy. We aren't told how this law is lost, but the two kings before Josiah, Manasseh and Amon, were two of the most wicked who ever ruled in Jerusalem, or in Judah, Manasseh was the one who instituted child sacrifice, and he actually brought golden calves into Solomon's temple. Good for him! It's like really gets bad. So it wouldn't make sense for them to hide away the law since they almost systematically regarded its requirements. We're just going to get rid of this, and so here Josiah is. This is insane. In 2 Kings 22, Hilkiah, the high priest, finds the book of the law in the house of the Lord. He gives it to Shaphan, the court secretary, who brings it to King Josiah. And and he reads it to him, and this is what Josiah says. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. And he said, go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for all the people. Inquire about the words written in the scroll that have been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We have been not doing everything that we must do. Do you feel the weight of that? That the king of Judah finds the book... And you realize we're in a covenant relationship with God. And we have been defying Him. And we are under obligation to follow this law. And we haven't even had it. See, it's crazy because um, as near as I could find, the last time the law was read publicly was during the reign of Jehoshaphat. That had been 250 years. 250 years. I mean, just to put that in perspective, imagine that the Declaration of Independence was read on July 4th, 1776, and then was lost until today. And we just read it for the first time. But unlike a document that just severed the colony's political connections to Great Britain, this document held the entire obligation of your life. So at this time, it wasn't as if God's people were trying to keep the law or or weren't trying to keep the law. No, they weren't trying at all because they didn't even have it. King Josiah immediately starts trying to fix things. He starts to institute reform t- to remove idolatry and Canaanite influence from the land. He restores the Passover, which blows my mind. I didn't even realize this till this week. But it hadn't even been kept since the day of the judges. In fact, the last time we hear the people keep, keeping the Passover to remember what God had freed them from in Egypt was in Joshua 5, which was over a thousand years ago. So literally David didn't even he didn't even keep the passover. But all just King Josiah is able to do is slow down the process. He cannot prevent judgment from coming. Once Israel had proven herself unfaithful to God, nothing could avert the curses of Deuteronomy's falling. Assyria had already conquered Israel in the north and 722 B.C. The kingdom itself had come to nothing. They were exiled and literally extinguished from history. We do not hear about those tribes ever again. Period. And now 250 years later, the Babylonians would conquer Judah. The tribe of David. The tribe in which Genesis 49 promised to bring a king. It would conquer Judah and lead the people into captivity. The promised land would be conquered. The king would be put into captivity. God's presence, according to Ezekiel 11, would leave the Holy of Holies. And the temple would literally be burned to the ground. I think it's worth asking why God is taking this route to achieve His purpose. Why do we get this arc of triumph and failure? Why the law? Why not send Jesus right after the promise of Abraham? And I think it's to demonstrate for all of eternity that salvation is not in any way achieved by human effort. God allowed the human institution to come to nothing so that it would be forever clear that salvation was entirely by His power and His grace. He did it so that In the coming ages, He would show the incomparable riches of His grace. The immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace we have been saved. See, Israel hit rock bottom and it had no ability to get themselves out. Because I want you to think about this. Even though they were put into exile, the requirements of the old covenant was as solid as the day it was spoken. Under the old covenant, what was required in order for the day of atonement? In order for forgiveness to be brought to the nation? What was required? The temple was required. It was burned to the ground. The articles inside were needed for service. The Levite priests who were now scattered across the earth. The Ark of the Covenant. See, without the temple, we had no place for proper sacrifice. With the articles of the ceremony... Without the articles inside, the lampstand, the table, the ceremony could not take place under old covenant law. Without the Levite priests, no one could perform it. And without the Ark of the Covenant, there was no mercy seat to sprinkle blood on. Because of their disobedience, God literally brought them to a place where they had no means to bring them what He required. Bring him what he required. No temple, no articles. Priests are scattered. And the Ark of the Covenant was never seen again. Even when the second temple is built. Even when Herod finally finishes it in 18 B.C. There is no Ark in the Holy of Holies. In fact, when Tacitus remarks, when uh, Antiochus goes into the Holy of Holies and he puts up, he, he kills a pig... And this is uh, 162 B.C. He kills a pig. He puts an altar of Zeus. He cuts down the Holy of Holies, the curtains. And he puts this foreign sacrifice to Zeus in there. And Tacitus remarks, when he went into there, the Holy of Holies was a bare dome. There was nothing in it. No presence. No ark. Nothing. Nothing. God's presence in the Holy of Holies was gone. See, in a real way, God said, this system is broken. And what I really feel like He was saying was, I'm going to take from you the ability to bring me what I require. You can't even bring me what I require now. You cannot bring me the proper sacrifice. I read an article from... A lot of prominent rabbis of, of today, uh, a lot of Jewish texts uh, back in the day as well, because I wanted to know, in light of this, how forgiveness is possible as a Jew who does not believe in jesus Jesus and this is what one prominent rabbi I read this week said he said, The centrality of the animal sacrifices cease not with the destruction of the Sem- second temple by the Romans, but rather with the destruction of the first, by the Babylonians, where we are right now in the Kings. He says, "...please remember that the vast majority of Jews never went back to the Promised Land, and still they remained in Babylonia, despite the permission and encouragement of Cyrus of Persia to return. By the time Jesus was born, 80% of the world's Jewish community lived outside of the Promised Land. And if the blood sacrifice was still required..." And from the destruction of the first temple, we have been without hope until we can establish what has been lost. And to this day, since 70 AD, there has not been a sacrifice made because after the second temple was wrecked, it has never been rebuilt. And the cornerstone of the temple now in Jerusalem is under the mosque So literally in a Jewish perspective, they said, until we can rebuild, until this mosque moves and we can rebuild this, there is no forgiveness. But even if they do, the ark is gone. There is no mercy seat. While God had many purposes of the law, one of the clearest and most important was to point to the need of a greater sacrifice still to come. This sacrifice would have to defeat the serpent and reverse the effects of God's curse. So we have to conclude that the promised seed would somehow defeat the seed of the serpent by providing a final and complete sacrifice. See, God redeemed his people out of Egypt by means of a substitute. By means of the Passover lambs. Very early in the Bible, we see this pattern of redemption established. In the first Passover, we see the pattern God established in the law. The entire Mosaic covenant points forward to the need of greater sacrifice. Especially here, when we see the fragility of the earthly sacrificial system. It had literally been burned up in smoke. Well, in the midst of these two kingdoms, this time in the kings, being destroyed, God gives the prophet Isaiah a vision that pointed forward to the definitive solution for sin. See, God would provide a greater sacrifice. He would send a suffering servant. And the Lord would lay on him the sins of the world. You know, I think we forget about the heart of God when we see Him put His people into exile and we see judgment come. But God gave them clear warnings consistently through the prophets, through His Word. Come back to Me. Turn from your sin. If you would just turn from yourself and return to Me. And in no place have I seen this clearer than Hosea 11. In Hosea 11, this is this is a word for from the Lord when He sends His people into exile. And I want you to hear His heart. He says, I am the Holy One living among you. And I will not come to destroy. Oh, how can I, can I give you up, O oh Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Admor, demolish you like Zeboahm? My heart is torn within me. and My compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy you. For I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you. For someday the people will follow me. And I, the Lord, will roar like a lion. And when I roar... My people will return trembling from the west like a flock of birds that will come from Egypt trembling like doves. They will re- return from Syria and I will bring them home again. I know we've spent a lot of time getting to this chapter but I really wanted to stress the historical context surrounding this text because I think it will make it jump off the page for you. This is our greater sacrifice. This is Isaiah 53. It's in your outline. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green root, like a root in dry ground. There is nothing beautiful or majestic about His appearance, nothing to attract us to Him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. And he was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we can be made whole. He was whipped so that we can be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet He did not say a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as the sheep is silent before the shearers, He did not open His mouth unjustly condemned he was led away no one cared that he died without descendants that his life was cut short at midstream but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people he had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone but he was buried like a criminal and he was put in a rich man's grave but it was the Lord's good plan To crush him. And cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin. He will have many descendants. And he will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish. He will be satisfied. Because of his experience. My righteous servant will make it possible. For many to be counted Righteous. For he he will bear all of their sins. And I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier. Because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. And he bore the sins and interceded for rebels. This was written 150 years. Before. Judah was destroyed. This was written during the reign of King Manasseh when he instituted child sacrifice. And he brought idols into God's temple. This is grace. Behold the Lamb of God who takes sins of the world. This is Jesus as our representative. He would step in and do what all the sacrificial system could never do. He would bring peace and healing. He would absorb the sin and guilt of a nation that literally had no means in which to bring a proper sacrifice. He would bear the sins of many and he would reverse the effects of the fall. Hallelujah. I was going to read the entire chapter of Hebrews 9 and 10 to you, but we don't have time, so there's your homework. <laughs> I want to make this very clear to you, church. I had a very textbook understanding of the God of the Bible. There are two ways to approach Him. There is one requirement blood. There's no forgiveness of sins without the blood. There are two ways to approach this God the old covenant or the new. Let me tell you what the old covenant requires of you. If you are going to be forgiven by Yahweh, by this God, by our King, you need a temple, you need a Levitical priest. You need all the holy articles. You need a spotless lamb. And you need an ark. You have no ability to bring God what He requires of you under the old covenant. So there is only one other way. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the coming ages, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. The immeasurable riches of his grace. If you are struggling today with trying to work your way into God's graces, let me tell you, you can't. Because even if your heart is in the right place, blood is required. You cannot be good enough to earn God's salvation. You cannot bring him what is required of yourself. But you know who can? You know who has done all the work, who did a completed task on our behalf so that we might now walk into the throne of grace and receive mercy in times of need? Jesus. It is finished. There are not a thousand ways to get to this God because it requires blood and in Hebrews 9 I love what it says it says that Jesus paid the price once and for all because if it didn't happen once and for all he would have had to die every single year from the beginning of time but he didn't Christianity is not about legalism or rules or regulations it is about grace That in the old covenant, as kings would find this law and understand the weight they were under to try to perform their way, to just stay right with God. Now Jesus says, believe in me and receive from me all the richness of my grace. Please go home and read Hebrews 9 and 10. Father, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you for the sacrifice. Lord, I thank you that you have brought the greater temple, that you have brought the greater priest, that you have brought the greater sacrifice, that you have brought the greater glory. as a people who are lost and broken and being constantly bombarded by the seed of the serpent. Lord, I thank you that the seed of the promise has been established for 2,000 years. As Paul says that the gospel has gone out to all of creation and that it's calling us home. For every person struggling this morning with the weight of their sin, pray that they would have the strength to just believe and receive. For your gift is free and your grace is immeasurable. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Happy Mother's Day, church. Have an awesome week.